Jesus, we want to come today and simply love and learn and grow in you. And I pray that this word would comfort the afflicted and maybe afflict the comforted. And uh, so we ask, Lord, for your word to do what we could never do, simply reveal you to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as I said before, I've been, this series is kind of birthed out of reading uh, different accounts of Jesus leading up to, during, and after the cross and the resurrection. And uh, last week and this week, I really just had some more thoughts on this whole thing, that failure is universal experience, is it? Is there anybody that hasn't failed in the last 20 years? How many of you maybe failed this morning already? Raise your hand. We want to, yeah, okay, you probably barked at somebody or drove and cut in front of somebody or maybe something worse. I don't know. We don't want to hear about it now, but uh, we'll let you tell your table in just a little bit. But it's a universal experience and it can affect us all in a lot of ways. Failure, it shakes our confidence and removes us, keeps us really from moving forward in the things of God. One of the reasons why I like to live a pretty clean life, I have to take care of things. Because when I come up here on a Sunday morning, uh, you know, I I don't have many fights or I don't cause many problems for Trina anymore, but I used to. And I'll tell you what, by Saturday night, um, everything was really good between us because I knew I had to get up the next day and preach. While that probably wasn't the right motivation, it was a motivation because I knew that if I had things out of line there, it would affect my confidence. Uh, secondly, it produces self-doubt in the purposes that God has for you. You begin to think, could God really use me? Would God really want to use me in a certain situation or a circumstance? And then it diminishes your self-worth. Can I really do what God's called me to do? I'm not worthy to stand before God and and to do what he wants me to do. And ultimately, it can lead us to cause certain responses. And I want you to, we want to look at the life of Peter today, and I want you to look at John chapter 21. I'm going to read the first three verses. Because this is really the first response that ultimately failure that is untaken care of will lead us to. John 21 says this, after this, you might want to underline that and note that we're going to come back to that. Jesus revealed himself again. Another important phrase. Revealed himself again to his followers, his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, which were James and John's, and two others of the disciples, they were all together. Now, as they're together, remember, Peter's kind of the leader of this group. All of a sudden, Peter says this, I'm going fishing. Simon Peter said to them, uh, I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them, and they said, well, we're coming with you, they told him. So they went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. It's an interesting thing. It's probably not totally true, but in the scriptures, it is interesting that every time you see the disciples fishing, guess what? They never catch anything unless Jesus is around. I mean, it's really true. If you just go through the Gospels, Jesus shows up, and then they all of a sudden they have this big catch of fish. And I, and I think there is maybe a simple principle there that you can really never experience true success in your life unless you have Jesus in your boat on the shore with you. And so many of us try and do it differently. But this is some of the causes of or, or the, this, this, the, our failure can cause us to really respond this way. Last week we left Peter. We saw him denying Jesus. And afterwards, it says that he went outside and he was weeping, literally sobbing bitterly. Now, that little phrase at the beginning there, it says, after this. After what? Well, after the failure, after the denial, after the, after the, the weeping bitterly, after the cross, the death, and the resurrection, the disciples were told to wait in Galilee. And so they went, and they waited, and they waited. We don't know for sure how long there, but they waited. And finally, Peter, who is impetuous, he's a reactionary type person. What does he do? He says, guess what, guys? I am tired of waiting. I'm going back to fishing. And this is what failure so often does to us, loved ones, is it oftentimes leads us back from that which we came. And you say, well, fishing, that was his job. That's no big deal. 
Well, it is a big deal when Jesus says, you're not going to fish anymore for fish. You're going to fish for men. But you see, what we do in the midst of our failure, when it isn't taken care of before Jesus, you know what happens? We will go back to the old life, to the old things, because it's what we know, but it's also what fulfills us, we think. And then we'll end up going back to it, and finally, sooner or later, we're going to realize it really doesn't fulfill. But that's the tendency, to go back to what we know. It's so easy when we fail, if we don't take care of it, we'll slip back into the old life what we're comfortable with. Well, how does Jesus respond to our failure? How does he really respond? We all have different ideas about it. And today I want to kind of unpack that. But let me just get you thinking for a second, ask you a question. What does Jesus Christ expect, expect from you? Think about it. What does, he, what does he really expect from you? If we were going to distill it and bottom line it, what do you think he expects from you? What do you think? Maybe, anybody just throw out a couple things. <laughs> Obedience, yeah? Love? Commitment? Thankfulness? How many of you do those all the time really well? Raise your hand. Okay, good. I'm glad nobody raised their hand. Because sometimes we think we do, and maybe you do think that. You just don't want to raise your hand, and you're smart. You know why? Because can I tell you what I think Jesus expects from us? I think he expects failure. Why is that? Because that's all we do. We know commitment, love, and thankfulness, and all of those things. But how, much, how many of us just know we come up short? And Peter and the, tw- and the 11 other disciples walked with this, this powerful person of Jesus for three years, hand in hand, listened to him, saw him. And in the end, they still failed. And do you think for one minute Peter was surprised? I mean, excuse me, Jesus was surprised. You think he's really all that surprised when you mess it up? I don't think so. I- I- I'm going to tell you, and I-, I am more aware of this Every day of my life, the only reason that I get to stand here before you is because of Jesus' embrace of grace upon my life. I just, I have, I have really, uh, <clears throat> I used to think, but I'm more and more, I, I don't have a whole lot to offer you. And, and, and it's interesting that I'm just becoming more and more aware of that because I'm learning more and more stuff. But the big thing I'm really, I don't have a lot to offer. And if I don't have the embrace of Jesus' grace every day, I am going to be a Peter. And some of you would probably go, you know, Pastor, I agree, that's where I am. And that's why so much of what we're talking about in the last six months ties us back to if you don't have Jesus, it's going to be really tough, loved ones. See, Peter failed a number of ways throughout the three years, and then at the very end, the one that he loved so much, he failed the greatest. But I love these words here. Jesus reveals himself again. What do you mean again? Well, that's how Jesus operates. He's always revealing himself. Some of you today may be in the midst of some kind of a failure, trying to work your way out, or maybe you're heading, I don't know. But Jesus says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. But this is what I love about that statement. If you really understand it, after these things, see Jesus, it says that he's on the seashore. In just a moment, we're going to see in chapter 4, he's on the seashore. And it says at daybreak, he appears to them. Where did Jesus first appear to Peter? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that after Jesus arose and uh, Mary saw him, Martha saw him, a couple of the ladies saw him, then it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, it says that Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the 12, and then to 500. Can I tell you what that means to me? Jesus cared deeply about Peter and his failure. He doesn't say, Peter, that Jesus went to the 12 first. He says he went to Peter specifically. Why is that? Because he said, Peter, I want you to know something really clear. It's not over. Peter, I'm not done with you. And then after he appears specifically to Peter, then it's the 12 to the 500, 
and other eyewitnesses. Why does Jesus do that? Because he's into recycling. Jesus was green before it was cool. If you study Jesus in the New Testament, listen to this. He never trivialized. He never blamed anyone for being sick, emotionally ill, or demonized. Not once. You can't find it. He only, the only people that, that, that he dealt with in a harsh way were the religious people who didn't think they needed a physician that were the sickest of all. But he didn't blame anyone for being sick or emotionally ill. He never told anyone to stuff their past or their present. Why? Because he says, I want to come and I want to help you recycle your shame and your pain and your failure. And that's what he's going to do with Peter here. That's what he wants to do with you and me. See, a definition of recycling is this. It's a process to change materials waste into something new, into products to prevent waste of potentially useful materials. Would you tell the person next to you or the people at your table, you are a useful material? Now, why do I have you say that? You know why? Because some of you don't think you are. Some of you think you've maybe failed God too much. And I deal with people all the time. How could God ever use me? And I want to tell you today, you are useful material. God is in. Jesus Christ wants to recycle our lives. He comes to our lives to bring health and healing. And he does it with us just like he did with Peter. And one of the lessons for us today too, friends, is this, is that we don't trivialize people's past. We don't trivialize their pain or their shame due to failure. We are called to be like Jesus to them. The Gospel of John in chapter 1 notes this about Jesus' life. His life, it says that he came, he was bookended by grace and by truth. These are two allies. They are inseparable in your life and mine and in Peter's for moving forward from failure and to really become the people of God and to begin to look like Jesus, like we're called to. See, too often people see grace as putting up with something they shouldn't have to or living with this kind of permissiveness where everything is fine under the canopy of grace. Doesn't matter how you live or what you do. Not true. Grace is what Ian said. It's God's unmerited favor. It comes upon you. Not because you deserve anything from God, but because he is grace-oriented towards you. And then it is your life because of his grace that makes you want to live for him. And then some people see truth as like the, uh, it, it kind of sets the table of our lives where we get pulverized by the wrath of God. So you see the extremes we have? Truth is the wrath of God that comes to cut you up and grace is over here. It doesn't matter what you do. Just live however you want. And neither one of those, so those are the extremes that are not true because Jesus personifies grace and truth. And Jesus comes to Peter and he comes to you and to me and he never makes it an either or proposition and that's what we have a tendency to do. We see God as all grace or we see him as all truth. And what's interesting is what I see over the years is that usually what people scream for, they probably already have, but they want more of it. Oh, God, give us more doctrine and truth. You know what those people probably need? They probably need more grace. And the people scream, give me more grace. Just help me, I need more grace. You know what they probably need? They probably need a a little more truth to kind of tighten up the spiritual rivets of their spiritual life and loose living. But what I want you to see is Jesus comes in the perfect, delightful, delicious balance of these two things because Christ's first response to you and to me and to Peter in our failure is grace. Let's pick it up in verse (coughs) 4. Then daybreak came. Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Men, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? Some of your translations, I believe, say children. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't go, hey, losers, failures, jerks, betrayers, losers. No, he he has the ultimate respect. That's why I say, I don't know that he expects anything else from us but failure. And he says, men. You don't have any fish, do you? Now, this is a miracle right here. 
okay? These are fishermen. And they say no. <laughs> you know, they didn't say, man, we lost a couple of big ones. You know, we had a few in the nets and they got away. They just flat out say, no, no, we didn't catch any. They answered. And then Jesus says this. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, which is who? John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Why? Because all of a sudden, he remembered Luke chapter 5 when Jesus told him another time, cast your nets on the right side. Jesus is reeling them back into himself. John recognizes it. And then when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him for he was stripped and he plunged into the sea. But since they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat and they were dragging the net of full fish. But when they got out on land, they saw, underscore this, a charcoal fire there and fish were lying on it and there was bread. Hey, bring some of the fish that you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter got up and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. True fishermen. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 12. Jesus gives this precious, gracious invitation. Wouldn't you love this? Hey, would you just come have breakfast with me? So Jesus told them, None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Hear this, loved ones. Jesus comes to our lives, not to relive the past, but to remove the past. That's really important for some of us here. I love this passage because you see in Jesus, he's coming to Peter. And we see that true love with grace doesn't compromise and truth in love doesn't condemn. Jesus is not going to do that in either case here. Well, what do you mean? This had to be a deja vu moment for Peter. Last week we talked about, remember when Peter, his ultimate denial, he's in the courtyard. What is he doing? He's sitting around a fire. One of the translate, one of the gospels notices, it, it, it states specifically a charcoal fire. What's the word here? They saw a charcoal fire. Jesus was building that. What is he doing? It's a setup. He's bringing Peter back. Hello, deja vu, bro. Remember the last time you were in a charcoal fire? Because it's the same word that's used in the other account when he makes the denial. And it's the only place in the Bible where those two words are used. And Jesus says, I'm going to bring it back, bro. I want you to go back where you were. Charcoal fire. In the midst of his greatest denial the warmth, the smell, Jesus brings him back to it. What's the point? See, part of the recycling process, friends, in our lives is to take us back, to change us into this new product from the old, to remind us where we were so that we can change and not get it rubbed in, but allow Jesus to rub it out and bring transformation to our lives. See, transformation is just simply another word for recycling. Bible, that's the Bible, what the Bible uses for your life and mine. So Jesus cooks up some filet of fish burgers for the brothers, and he welcomes Peter to the morning seashore. He brings him back to this scene, a reminder of his greatest failure. Jesus calls him back. You learn over time that the places of our greatest pain often become the places of our greatest healing. Have you ever noticed that? How many of us have been through a divorce, which was one of the greatest pains in our life, only for God to give us a new mate that brought us the greatest healing and trust in that opposite sex and in the marital relationship again? That's what God does. He recycles it. 
But see, too many people get stuck in the failures of the past. I hear it all the time. Can, will God really forgive me? Is it possible? I just don't know. Well, can I tell you something? I believe it. Peter's going to experience it and show it to us. What's been such a blessing for me is we've seen God grow us in the last months. There's a number of people sitting in this service right now. And there'll be a number of people in the next service where when I first met them, they were at the end of their rope, ready to give it up, to throw it in, to go back. And all of a sudden, somehow, someway, somewhere in the midst of what God doing is at Creekside and through you is these people encountered this fresh revealing of Jesus. And they're moving forward. They're getting healed. Why? Well, because of his life and his touch. Jesus is healing men and women where they didn't know or think they could ever be healed. That's the way the grace of God works. When you open up to it. I remember, um, I, 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 I talk about my family now and again and Sometimes I really hesitate to do it, but it's the only family I got, so I got to talk about them. And uh, interestingly enough, they've all signed off when I talk about them. And uh, so just know that. But uh, you'll see a picture up here of my uh, oldest son, uh, Joel. It was a number of years ago. Yeah, see how old he is there. He's probably nine or 10. And uh, he was a pretty natural athlete. And in the Martinez Leagues, he grew up playing baseball here. And um, it was interesting because he's a big kid, stocky kid, strong kid, and uh, now he's 6'4". Well, but back then in those days, he was like the Babe Ruth. Him and this other kid named Danny, they were on different teams, and Danny was a giant. I mean, he's like Goliath. And, and Joel was a big around, and this kid was tall, and they, they just hit home runs all the time. I mean, when they come up, you just expect him to go over the fence. And so, you know, and, and Joel was kind of one of these aw shucks kinds of kids. You know, sports wasn't that big a deal. It was just kind of natural for him. So, you know, he plays and, and he gets this reputation. And so, you know, the, the parents in the stands, ooh, ah, Joel's up. And, and he comes up and, you know, they just figure he's going to get a big hit. And oftentimes he did. Well, we were playing, I can't remember if it was the end of the year. Or, but we were playing in a fairly important game against another team that everybody wanted to win. And he comes up and it's toward the end of the game. And uh, all of a sudden, Joel's coming up. You kind of hear the fan, I mean, the, our, our fans, our parents. Ooh, Joel's, oh, good, yeah. Ooh, yeah, Joel's coming up. This is a done deal. And I'm coaching third base thinking, yeah, it's a done deal. My son's coming up. So he gets up there, and uh, we need him to do something pretty good. So I'm just thinking, you know, he's pretty good. He'll probably get a homer. He just kind of saunters up there, and all of a sudden, he stands up there, and he just takes this behemoth swing. And I mean, he was going for the fences. And his head turns, and he turns around, and strike one. <laughs> man, no biggie. And all of a sudden, the same thing, man. Guy throws a pitch, and it's strike two. I mean, he just took the biggest swing. Well, now he looked at me, and I'm on third base, and I said, come on, bub, you can do it. And he looks at me, and I could tell he was a little nervous. So he steps back in the box, and he just stands there with the bat. Strike three end of the game. Now, what was interesting is, is, you know, the one team really celebrated, and our team didn't do much because they're trying to get their stuff together. Coaches going out and congratulating. We're getting ready to go shake their hands. What was interesting is some of the parents, I heard them talking. How could he do that? What, what happened? Why didn't Joel do that? And, and, I mean, nobody went to him. And you just hear a couple of people, oh, I can't believe he struck out. We lost the game. And I'm standing there at third base kind of looking at him, and I'm not even sure I want to go identify with him, you know? <laughs> no, I'm just, nah. But he, he's standing there, and he looks at me, and all of a sudden he starts walking toward me, and I can see his little chin start to quiver. And I know that he is really broken about this, and he usually doesn't care. He walks over to me, and I just kind of, then I picked up my pace, and I just went over to him, and I begin to just, just put my arm around his neck. You know why? I just wanted everybody in that little ball field up there at Joey's ball field. I want every one of those people to know this is my boy. And I love him. I love my other son more than anything in the whole wide world. 
And I don't care how they fail. And I didn't always do it perfectly, but I, I just it didn't matter what they did. That they're my boy. And the reason I tell you that story because it's one of the things I've learned about the grace of Christ, the love of our heavenly Father. How many times have I failed? How many times do I fail? And this heavenly Father, He says, "That's my boy." I'm, I'm, I'm committed to him. That's what he's doing to Peter here. In front of the other, in front of the other ten guys. Or actually, he's probably about six or seven of those guys. What's he doing? He's saying, you guys know this is the denier, but he's my boy. And my grace is going to get him through this. And some of you need to hear this, loved ones, that Jesus' grace is going to get you through if you'll simply come to him or allow him to come to you on your shore. See, our view of failure would determine the extent of our future success. Jesus is our healer. When we come to him and look to him and repent, it is then that we can continue to move forward in our destiny and respond to his grace. And that's what some of those people of Creekside are doing now. The wise Welch preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, what said this, superficial views of the work of Christ produce superficial human lives. That's a powerful statement, but it's painfully true. People who don't understand what Christ has done for them, they won't have lives that are stable and have stability. Because when you fail, you don't think you can go back to this God. Yet the reverse is also equally true. Those who are grounded in their understanding of Christ's work are bound to, and, and, and will ultimately lead, I believe, satisfying lives. The place where we fully see and understand what Jesus has done, loved ones, is the cross. Christ's second response is truth. He comes to us in grace, puts his arm around us, but then he's gonna, he'll speak truth to us. Christ never questions us. Watch what he does with Peter here, beginning in verse 15. It says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says, do you agape me, unconditional love, more than these? And these, these, it could be a couple of things. It could have been his fishing experience. It could have been the boats. It could have been his, his job, fishing. It could have been the disciples. It could have been his life. But he asked him this very pointed question. Peter's response was, yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Now, what's interesting, Peter doesn't use the word agape or agape, which is unconditional, total commitment, no matter what. He uses the word phileo. He says, I, I, you're my friend, Lord. That's the kind of love I have for you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then Jesus says to him a second time, the same scenario. He asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord. You know that I love you like a friend, that I, I, I owe you, I, I love you. And Jesus says, shepherd my sheep, he told him. And he asked him the third time, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter's grieved. You know why? Because Jesus is exposing his failure. He's bringing it to the surface. But there's a purpose in that. Do you love me? This time Jesus says, do you phileo me? I know where you are, Peter, I understand. You can't make that brash statement because you know you may not be able to do it. You may fail just like you did before I died. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, Jesus... He comes to give us truth. He comes to remove the past, but he also wants to review your future. Jesus not only brings Peter back to the charcoal fire to remind him of the denial in the courtyard, but then he asks him this question three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you uh, 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 agape me? Are you committed to me? Is there unconditional love? Peter said, you know, I just really like you, Lord. I'm not going to open mouth, insert foot, make promises that I can't 
can't live up to anymore. You've already seen. You know. You know I'm a, I'm a failure. What's, what's, what's Jesus saying? He says, Peter, I'm going to start where you are. I know the pain you're going through. And I want you to know something, Peter. It's not about your performance. This is what I really want to know, Peter. Do I have your heart? I don't want your words. Your performance isn't what's at issue here. I want your heart. And Peter's really trying to say, you've got it. And see, loved ones, when, when, when we fail, Jesus always comes to us. Do I have your heart? Not your mind, not your body, not your works. Those will all come if I've got your heart. Titus 3.5 says that salvation, wholeness, is really what it's talking about, but a relationship with Christ is never based on my performance. Titus 3.5 says that he saved us not because of the good works that we did, but because of his mercy. I love that. Jesus starts where Peter is. He starts where I am and where you are. And he asks these three questions of Peter. He takes these three questions. Do you love me? They're positive. Of course, Lord, you know. Why does he ask them three times? Yeah, you probably got it. Because he denied him three times. And as he denied him three times, again, what is Jesus doing? He's not rubbing it in. He says, I want to rub it out. Before I ascend to heaven, I don't want you to remember the three denials. I want you to remember the three expressions of love. And he takes Peter back. They're face to face. Not to, not to rub his failure in, but to get healed. And he wants, because you know what? If Peter doesn't deal with this, you know what happens? He stays a fisher man instead of becoming a fisher of men. Because you know what failure will do. It'll hold you back. And Jesus had to come and say, Peter, I believe in you. I've got a plan for you. See, facing our failure and limitations, not avoiding them, is the first step to overcoming it and moving forward. And Jesus will help you do it. He'll never allow you to deny it. See, salvation is based on his love and his grace, not my performance or my failure. He'll always call us forward, though. I got another son, my younger son, Jamie. And uh, this is a picture when he was younger. We used to do this, I used to do this thing with my boys when they were growing up. I'd have breakfast meetings with them up here at little IHOP. They were simply to connect with them, to just sit face to face and talk to them about their life, about school, questions that they might have things that we couldn't talk about other places. As a matter of fact, he's the one, uh, I'll digress here just to give you a little funny thing about this kid. He's the one that would ask anything anywhere, anytime. One day we were up in Mangiabeni, a little Italian place, one of our little face-to-face connections. We're talking about life. And he's probably eight, nine, or ten, and he looks at me and goes, Dad, did you ever masturbate? He <laughs> was shortly thereafter we quit meeting face to face. But th- those, that's the way he is, or was, and he would ask all these great questions. So we're sitting in IHOP one day, and and we're talking about Jesus and why, why would he come and die for us and uh, for our sins and pay this price in terms of and give us forgiveness of sins. And he said, Dad, why, why would he do that? And I asked him, how many of, of, of your sins, Jamie, were in the future when Christ died for you? Because the idea was, well, how could Christ forgive my sins now when he died then? And well, after, he asked, after I asked that question, Jamie said, well, all my sins, I guess, because I wasn't alive then, so he had to actually pay for them then for now. I said, brilliant, much like your dad, a theologian. I loved it. <laughs> but then he asked this great question, if Jesus forgives and loves us, won't people just sin and just kind of let her rip and do whatever they want, however they want? And I thought, wow, another great question. 
And as, and as I was thinking this through, I thought of a story that someone had told me some years before that, and I shared it with them. And, 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 and the story was this. And I said, son, let's just say I killed some people. And I was brought before a judge, and I was found guilty before a jury. And they decided that I was going to die by lethal injection. But you were a little older, and you are sitting there and in the, in the audience and seeing me getting sentenced, and all of a sudden you stand up and you say, excuse me, judge, um, I really love my daddy. He made a big mistake, but I love him, and he's got he's to take care of our family and provide for our family. This is... I would like to know if it'd be possible that I could take his place. Well, this is really unusual, but the judge talks to the jury and they commiserate and they come to the conclusion that yes, he could step in and take my place. I'd be horrified. I'd be touched by his courage and by his heart and his love for me and I'd be glad not to have to die but how can I say, no, not my son? But the judge would say to him, say to Jamie, are you sure, son? Yes, judge. Tells the judge, tells the jury, I will be glad to do it for my dad. So they say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to transfer his guilt to your life. So on the day that he's going to have to die for me, they strap him in, and before they get him in there, they say, Mr. Riley, because we want you to feel the full effects of this, you're going to have to uh, push the plunger of the syringe and kill him, kill your son. Could you imagine the horror of that as a father? Now, see, this is the truth, loved ones. That's what Jesus did for us. My heart would be so broken because of failure and sin and wrong because it cost my son his life, but he was willing to do that for me. Now, after he did that, do you think for one minute I could go out and live the same way, kill again, do the same things that sent Jamie to his death in my place, that I actually had to push the, the, fill, shoot the syringe? No, I would be so impacted by the love and the sacrifice that he gave me in giving his life for mine. I could never live the same. As a matter of fact, I would be living now for two people. I would not only be living out my life, but I would be trying to live out the best in his aspirations, his goals, his dreams, his desires for his life. Now hear me, loved ones. See, that's what the gospel is in its essence. That's what Jesus did for you and I. It was our sin that pushed the plunger of the syringe. But Jesus said, no. You have purpose. You have a destiny that I want you to live out. So what happens? Not only does he come to us and give us grace, speak truth, but then he recycles our lives for his glory, our failure for his glory. Verse 18 says this. I assure you, when you were young, you would die. This is Jesus talking. I assure you, when you were young, Peter, that you, were, uh, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God through. After saying this, he told him, Peter, now it's time again. I'm recycling your failure. Follow me. That's the first words he spoke to him before. So Peter turned around. He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. This is what we do. Well, that disciple was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, uh, who is the one that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? He's talking about John. Listen, if I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Don't worry about what's going to happen around you. Don't worry about everybody else. I've got a call on your life. We're dealing with you, Peter, now. I was talking to my, my boss and my friend, Gary Emery, recently, and he, he said this to me, and it was 
pretty impactful. He said, you know what makes Jesus Jesus is that Jesus is that many people don't get him. They don't always get who Jesus is, what he did. But interestingly enough, people understand that Jesus gets them. And you know why? It's because we see how he deals with people. I don't understand everything about him, but I know this, he gets me. And that's what's so critical. Because see, Christ is in the business of transforming our worst failures into becoming trophies of his redeeming grace. There's so many people in this room, that, well, really all of us, that know Christ. We become his trophies as we love him, live for him, choose to follow him. Charles, uh, Chuck Colson, key Nixon staff member, literally one of Nixon's hatchet men during the Watergate years. Some of you know his story, but he became a Christ follower and he started prison fellowship and he talks about his failure uh, and his fall from political grace in his book, Born Again. It's one of the first books, it was the first Christian book that I ever read and had such a deep impact on my life. But when he came to Christ, this is what he said. The real legacy of my life was my biggest failure and most difficult circumstance. What I, what I was was an ex-convict. This is a guy that sat with Nixon in the White House, in the Oval Office, day after day. He says, my greatest humiliation going from the White House to being sent to prison became the beginning of God's greatest use in my life. He chose the one experience which I could not glory in to use it for his glory. Oh, can you, do you get, listen, it's not about us. And the very thing that we would never go, woo, look at this, is the very thing that God will probably use because it all points to him. Later, a pastor interviewed Colson, and he said this, you know, I'm a pastor, and I'm not real excited about people who use Jesus to get out of a jam, and then they end up dropping him when they go on with their life, and they're out of the jam. Tell me, Colson, how do I know this is going to be real with you? Colson stopped and he thought, and then he said, the only thing I can say is see and check what I'm doing in 10 years from now. That was 1974. Once he was out of prison, Colson started a ministry called Prison Fellowship that's been a model uh, for prison reform in many states today, and it's still going strong. He's recently passed away. But can I tell you something? That is a recycled life. That what was not meant for good ended up becoming a trophy of God's grace and goodness. It's so true. Jesus gets who we are. The psalmist says that he understands our frailty, that he knows we're just dust. And we're just not worth a whole lot other than the fact that we have his imprint upon our life. Hebrews 4.15 says he understands our weaknesses. He faced all of the same temptations that we did, yet he did not sin. And it's amazing he doesn't look down on us and go, you bad, bad, bad people. He doesn't. He says, I, I love you, and I'm going to call you back in love to me. Isaiah 119 says this, no matter how deep the stain of your sins and failures, I can take it out and make you clean as freshly fallen snow. This is what I know. Every day I need a fresh start. I think wrong. I speak wrong. I'll do, I just, every day I just need Jesus to come and to embrace me and to speak truth into my life. Speak forgiveness. Don't we all need that? I'll bet there's somebody here today that you're running from God. Maybe you've been hiding from him personally. Or, or, or maybe you're hiding something from him. Something small. It's not, it's not big enough to worry about. Or maybe there's somebody else here or somebody else. You're hiding something big. Because you're concerned that it's going to cause a big failure in your life. I'm so glad of the forgiveness of Jesus, the grace, and the truth. 
But when you have real sin in your lives, friends, you need real forgiveness. Because only then do you get real release. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about, to come and renew your life. And that's what he's doing with Peter. Sin is not a psychological problem. It is a spiritual problem. You can't counsel yourself out of it. I'm sorry. I believe in counseling. It is important. But until you deal with the initial thing, am I, have I, am, I with my, am I dealing with my sin before Christ? And do I really love Jesus? Only then is counseling really going to begin to make a difference. Because we will have a tendency to blame our spouse. That's the reason I'm a mess. Or our kids. If my kids would only be better kids. Or if those people around me would just be better. If my boss was better, I'd be a better person. Can I tell you something? That's denial. You're fooling yourself. Peter could have said, well, you know, I'm not the only one that wasn't there at the cross. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter. See, we try and we work so hard to control everything when what we need to do is come and be broken before Jesus. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe there's others that I hear people say so often how they love the Lord. I hear the Lord. I follow the Lord. The Lord told me this. The Lord spoke to me that. Peter heard the Lord. And he came to the point of really believing and following. And he knew the Lord. But the Lord wants to know this simple question, do you love me? Can I tell you how you know you're really loving the Lord? You want to know? You're doing what he says. Because, see, that's what the ultimate question is. Jesus says, listen, Peter, do you love me? Well, I don't know, Lord. I like you a lot. Do you love me? I like you a lot. Okay, I'm going to start with that. And then what is the first thing he says? Okay, go feed my sheep. If you, if you listen, I'm, you know, people just say, well, I just love Jesus, and they do whatever they want. And you can't get away with that. I'm sorry. If you really love Jesus, you'll do what he says. Otherwise, you're just getting kind of a spiritual placebo. There's no efficacious power that's going to change your life unless your whole thing is, Jesus, I love you, and I want to do what you want. Peter's focus could no longer be on what he wanted and what he wanted to do, but what Jesus wanted. And and listen, that gets defined differently for every one of us. Tomorrow morning, I'll probably wake up and wish I was driving a truck after today. And then God will say, no, no, you're going to pastor. You just get your little hiney back there. You love those people, and you talk about me. I don't care how bad you do. That's your job. I don't know what he's going to say to you. But if he says it, you better do it. Because that means you love him. Jesus showed Peter what his love was by showing him what it wasn't. Sometimes I really, and that's part of where I am now, I'm really realizing how much I don't love the Lord because he's showing me that and that makes me want to love him more. It's not guilt. I don't feel bad. I don't feel condemned. I just know I need more of Jesus. And that's what I want for our congregation. Failure is never final. Do you hear me? It's never final with Jesus. He comes to speak grace and truth and to make you a trophy of his goodness. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, you're so good to us and you love us so much. But like a good parent, a good sibling, You'll always call us forward. You'll never let us stay down. You'll never let us wallow in our sin and our failure. You'll always call us forward. And I pray that today some people here would feel this incredible embrace around their neck. And they can be confident that you're with them and experience your grace. There's others here that just need to hear the truth. It's time to move forward. 
Get up. Just tell me you love me and we're going to make it. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ, this one who took the syringe of death for you and your sin, I want to invite you to encourage you, challenge you, invite him into your life today so that you can follow him because he's the one that holds your destiny. He's the one that holds ultimate purpose for you. And you'll never be fully satisfied until you move toward him. And if you've never done that, I want to simply invite you to do two things. Say a prayer in just a moment with me and then mark on your connection slip that I received Jesus today. I want to move from failure. I want to move from sin. I want to move to new life. Ain't going to be easy, but it will always be good. Some of you maybe are in the throes of failure, you feel. Just say, Jesus, I surrender to you today. And I want you to know I love you. And I'm going to follow you. And just kind of recommit. Maybe you want to mark that on your connection slip. I just, I'm recommitting to Jesus again today. And I'm going to follow him. So here's the prayer. It's something like this. Just say this in your own mind, whether it's my words or your own vocabulary. Jesus, I know you died for my sins on the cross. You resurrected on the third day. I need help. I want to receive you today, and then I want to follow you. I want to, I don't understand it, but I know you understand me. And that's the most important thing right now. So, Jesus, forgive me. And help me to understand what it means to follow you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just reinforce the message with a prayer from the Apostle Paul. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I pray, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, and that Jesus the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the width, the height, and the depth of God's love, and to be filled with the fullness of his life. May you be blessed as you go today. You're loved. Amen.